Thanks so much, and thanks so much uh, for uh, attending. I, I would uh, think that uh, you can't wait to go back to the soap opera on, on our TV that's <laughs> unfolding right now uh, about our elections. Um, uh, so let, let me just uh, make a, a few opening remarks uh, about what I think is animating all the events in the Middle East that we watch. Uh, and, uh, and then I'll just open it up for any questions you have on a broad array of uh, issues. Uh, let me just say that, uh, in general, I, I study the Middle East and American policy in the Middle East, so I do polling uh, in the Arab world, in Israel, and in the U.S. about the Middle East. I've been doing quite an extensive polling here in the United States, uh, and especially the last couple of years I've released some um, uh, fresh polls, and I'm in the field right now actually polling on how Americans view issues in the Middle East broadly, foreign policy broadly, but especially uh, Middle Eastern issues. So any questions you may have related to that, uh, I'm certainly happy to address. Uh, but what I thought I would do um, is something that uh, clearly our politicians are not interested in at all. I mean, this, <laughs> you know, what's fascinating is that uh, how little uh, uh, issues matter in our, uh, seemingly in our, in our uh, elections right now. And so, um, uh, so what I'm saying, you know, in, in that regard is thank you for being interested in issues. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, so, um, so let me give you my take on, um, you know, sort of what is it that's going on in the Middle East? I mean, you know, uh, most of you have uh, watched the Middle East over the years. Not that the Middle East has not been in the news for almost every decade, and, you know, for one reason or another. Uh, so it's not that the Middle East has not been in the news, but I think even in historical perspective, this period that we're watching, uh, just certainly in the past decade and especially since the beginning of the Arab uprisings in, in, in 2010, 2011, has been extraordinary. Uh, has been extraordinary in terms of uh, the tumult, the violence, um, and also in terms of the global interest in what's happening in the region, and the, uh, potentially the consequences, the global consequences beyond the region itself. So I will give you my own take on, on what's happening, uh, you know, in some ways because I think uh, what we hear in the conventional wisdom is something uh, that I don't personally accept as an analyst and a student of the region. Uh, that is that this is sort of in, out of, inherently what you get out of the Middle East. They've been at it for, for decades or they've been at it for centuries. Or it's all this sectarianism that really drives all the violence that's there. I don't accept that. And let me tell you why I don't accept that, and, and I'll do it backward. I'll tell you, first of all, what accounts for it and why I don't accept that historical perspective. Uh, I think there are two factors that have led to the intense conflict that we're now watching in the region. One factor is the Iraq War of 2003, and the other factor is globalization reaching the Middle East. And, and let me tell you how those two, in my own opinion, have had such far-reaching consequences. I know, um, you know, most of us in the United States have obviously watched the Iraq War, and I think now it's become conventional wisdom. It's had bad consequences for the region. I think that's actually, uh, you know, both Republicans and Democrats agree on that. I do polling here in public opinion. Everyone's in interpretation has been along these lines, and as you know, uh, even uh, certainly the Democrats make that argument, but Republicans now, particularly Donald Trump, has been making that argument. Uh, so, 
And yet, I don't think we fully internalize, we fully understand how consequential the Iraq War was, why it has such extraordinary consequences for the region. So let me, allow me just to take a few minutes uh, to talk about the things that really made this war extraordinary in terms of its consequences. Uh, first, this war has unleashed sectarianism in the Middle East, sectarian conflict in the Middle East. Now, when I say it has unleashed sectarian conflict in the Middle East, uh, what I'm saying to people is, you've got this backward. Sectarianism is not the cause of conflict. It's not the cause of state collapse in Iraq or Syria or Libya. Sectarian conflict is an outcome of state collapse. Uh, sure, you know, sectarianism has been with us forever. I mean, you know, uh, Shias and Sunnis have disagreed. Uh, this divide is, dates back to the origins of Islam. This is not new. But the question that you have to ask is under what circumstances did this turn into conflict? And people have complex identities. So if you are a Shia Iraqi, you're not only a Shia, you're also an Iraqi, you're also an Arab, you're also a citizen of the world, you're also a husband or a wife, you're also all kinds of things. So under what circumstances does this Shia identity rise to the top? Uh, if you look historically, Sunni and Shia uh, have gotten along at various uh, stages. They marry each other. Uh, by the way, even under Saddam Hussein, which was certainly heavily focused on, on Sunnis, a lot of people don't realize that when the United States went into Iraq in 2003, and you remember we issued what we call the deck of cards, meaning the 50 people that are most wanted from Saddam Hussein's regime uh, that, that we have accused of crimes and we wanted them badly. A majority of them were Shia, by the way. And this is something that we don't, you know, we, 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 we sort of don't think about because we're looking at Saddam Hussein at the top. So what I'm arguing to you is that the, the state, when the state collapsed, uh, people have relied more and more on their sects and families and tribes uh, for survival without central authority that they claim. The Iraqi identity diminished. The Arab identity diminished. Uh, their human identity diminished in the context of violence. So sectarian conflict is an outcome of state collapse, not its cause. And the Iraq war has unleashed sectarianism, um, both within Iraq and I think broadly beyond Iraq because of the transnational aspect of these relations. So number one, uh, this, is, this is an outcome of the Iraq War. Number two, uh, the Iraq War opened the doors for Al-Qaeda and therefore ISIS to come into the Middle East. Now, of course, Al-Qaeda has genesis in the Middle East. It, uh, a lot of people originated from Egypt or Saudi Arabia, but frankly, they were kept out of operational uh, bases in the Middle East. They were mostly operating in Afghanistan, as you know, under the Taliban. And in part, under Saddam Hussein, with all his ruthlessness and dictatorship, he, he kept a tight ship. And there was no chance that a group like Al-Qaeda would operate on his soil. And with the anarchy that resulted in the sectarianism, it was inevitable that Al-Qaeda was going to come and start operating in the Middle East. And let's not be kidding ourselves. Al ISIS is a product of both Al-Qaeda and remnants of the Iraqi uh, Saddam Hussein regime. 
That's what it is. So ISIS is also a product of the Iraq war, as is the basis of al-Qaeda in Iraq. So that's huge. That's two unbelievable factors. Number three, it gave rise to the assertiveness of Iran. Uh, now, I, I don't say that with any, you know, uh, accusation of Iran per se. I, I'm, think, I'm looking at it simply as an analyst of international relations. And, and I see, I'm looking at the Gulf region, the Persian Gulf region, and I see that uh, even when we, the United States of America, intervened and had bases, have historically relied on keeping what we thought would be a strategic balance in the region between Iraq and Iran because the U.S. doesn't want to get involved in, in more wars than it needs to. Uh, and certainly the region, including the Gulf states like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and Qatar and all these countries that have had a, a, um, an interest in stability because they had you know, oil to protect and they're relatively weak militarily, uh, that they have relied not only on the U.S. but also on having this uh, balance between Iran and Iraq. And what happened with the Iraq war, Iraq is no longer a strategic player. And not only that, it in fact moved closer to Iran than to Arab world. It certainly wasn't going to be a balancer. And with that, Iran emerged as the most powerful state in the Gulf, or none. And it became more assertive. And it opened up new avenues for it to influence in the Arab world. Now, if you are, aside from the sectarianism, which is still a factor in that relationship, put that aside for a minute, but if you are Saudi Arabia or, or the United Arab Emirates, and you're worrying about Iran, suddenly the strategic picture shifted against you. And that, what does that mean? At a time when the fourth element kicked in, and the fourth element is that we, the United States of America, given that we spent $2 trillion on Iraq and then we got a mess on our hands and the public said no more, we don't want to get an, engaged in another war, so at a time when we were reluctant to intervene, the Gulf states are feeling more insecure, both because we, they think we're more reluctant to intervene and, and because their opponent, Iran, has, has risen up. So what did they do? They start intervening themselves in ways that they are not accustomed to. More assertiveness in Syria, more assertiveness in Egypt by banking you know, the, the Egyptian military to help the overthrow of, of of Mursi with, with billions and billions of dollars by intervening in, in Yemen. The sort of things that they have not had, had not done historically uh, because they feel, uh, you know, sort of besieged and insecure, both worried about their own population in the context of the Arab uprisings and also worried strategically about a picture that's shifting. So all of that is mostly tied to the Iraq war. It's not all about the Iraq war, don't, don't get me wrong, but certainly you could see how the Iraq war has unleashed these forces that were hugely destabilizing across the region. Now let me come to the second uh, set of uh, variables, and that is the, the Arab, the, what I called you know, globalization reaching the Middle East, um, which uh, you know, happens to in, in some ways coincide with this period. Now what do I mean by that? Uh, first, I mean the economic part of globalization, and second, I mean the information part of globalization. Now, the economic part of, part of the globalization, uh, I think a lot of people don't fully understand, uh, because um, historically it's true that there has been a gap 
uh, in the Middle East between rich and poor, between the governing elites and the public. And the public, frankly, has felt helpless in some ways, you know, to, uh, to change the environment uh, economically and politically. Uh, these are mostly authoritarian rulers uh, tied to wealthy elites. And the public in general have not benefited. And you've seen that. And, the, you know, I, in my public opinion polls, this tension and the gap between public and, and ruling elites has always been there. What happened with the, with the reach of globalization uh, is that initially, if you recall, in the 1990s, um, you know, we're talking about, you know, roughly uh, 20, 20 years ago, um, when you uh, read the literature about globalization, uh, how many of you have read, uh, you know, Tom Friedman's uh, uh, book about the flat earth? Uh, I mean, basically, uh, people thought this was going to level the playing field. Uh, and people, people thought it, it was going to narrow the gap between, between rich and poor, at least between north and south and, and across, across the globe. Uh, what, in fact, happened is something that we are reeling from here at home. You know, the empty establishment wood that we feel uh, that is driving perhaps some of Trump's support, certainly drove some of Sanders' support, uh, perhaps something that drove, uh, you know, the movement uh, for Brexit in, in, in the UK, and perhaps some of the anti-immigration policies in much of Europe and Germany, um, that this what we call uh, the system of rigged mood. The system is rigged mood. The anti-establishment mood is really a feeling that the system is rigged. And, and frankly, it's about people feeling, um, you know, I, I may have had it bad, but my kids are going to have it worse. Uh, and, and frankly, that includes me. I mean, I'm an immigrant to this country. I came in here just as I was turning 19 years old, and, and I feel I had incredible opportunity to, to advance myself. I don't think my children are going to have that opportunity who were born under much better circumstances in a family that is upper middle class, better educated, and everything else. And I don't think they're going to have a better chance. That's, that's something that we all feel, many of us feel. And frankly, if you look at it, that's what a lot of people feel around the world. Because there was this expectation of leveling a playing field. What happened in globalization, in my own opinion, in places like the Middle East, is that it actually exacerbated the gap between rich and poor rather than narrowed it. And the reason for it is that it turned out that it actually leveled the playing field for elites across, across countries globally, meaning that uh, uh, you know, Arab elites and Turkish elites and Israeli elites and, and, and everybody else actually linked up to uh, uh, European elites and American elites and Chinese elites who all have had a better chance of making it big, but it all came at the expense of everyone else within the developing countries, certainly in the Middle East and the Arab world, and here in America and certainly in Europe, and that's what we feel. It reached the Arab world very rapidly in part because there was already anger with elites over things like the Iraq war in the 1990s. People were disgusted by the rulers who told them the Iraq war would be a disaster for them. They told them that. They told the U.S. that. Uh, and then yet they, they went along with it anyway because they couldn't go against the U.S. And they were disgusted by that as well. And, and they were disgusted by the gap. And on top of that, the information revolution 
creates an environment where they hear more of it. So for example, um, WikiLeaks starts uh, spreading in Tunisia where it all started the first before, before uh, the president uh, was overthrown. Uh, we have all these stories from WikiLeaks about the corruption and the deals that his wife is making and, and how even his allies in Europe and the United States are making fun of him for being so corrupt and, and outlandish uh, uh, and, 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 and so forth. So, so it exacerbated the sense, the information exacerbated the sense of alienation. Um, the information revolution did a number of things. One, it, it opened up the world for people, meaning people started seeing what the rest of the world has that they don't have, get more information. Uh, number two, it created the ability to mobilize uh, in ways that were not open before, uh, meaning uh, a, uh, young people uh, coordinating over social networks uh, to be able to get to the streets without the need for organized political parties, as initially happened in the in uh, Arab uh, uprisings in, in Tunisia and Egypt, where really you didn't need the typical political organization to do that because people could do it now with this available uh, uh, information. And so with this information revolution that reached the Arab world, there is a what I call an empowerment of the individual on a scale that we had never witnessed before, of people who just don't accept, of people who uh, uh, who expect better, of people who think they're empowered to do something in ways that they never felt in the past. Uh, and that creates a whole different dynamic of a, um, expectations and action. Uh, but what happens is, of course, old forces don't go away. So essentially, um, the elites don't just give up their, uh, their power. Uh, uh, and so what, the, what they end up doing is there's a backlash, and there's more struggle. And, uh, and so what you have is rewriting the rules of the game uh, with rising public expectations and an entrenched elite, what people have called the deep state, uh, fighting back. Um, and you don't need sectarianism for that. We see it in Egypt, uh, where you know, Egypt is 90% uh, Sunni Muslims almost. Uh, the Christians are maybe 10, possibly by the, the widest estimate, maybe 12% of the population. Uh, Tunisia certainly is not one that is divided along Sunni Shia divide. So we don't really have sectarianism in these countries, but then there's ideological divide that emerges uh, in the context of that fight. All of this is happening, uh, obviously, in the, in, 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 in the context of an interested global community. So the consequences for what happens, the stakes for what happens in every single place uh, are high for the international community. And, and to take one example alone of these stakes, look at Syria. Uh, one issue that we obviously are facing uh, where there are lots of contradictions in policy. Uh, there are lots of contradictions in um, you know, um, uh, the choices that we're making or the choices that everybody else is making. Uh, and, and we're the heartbreak situation, where it's very hard to envision a happy outcome anytime soon, where so many innocent people are getting killed and, uh, on, 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 on huge uh, refugee crisis that has emerged that is consequential not only for Syria and the Middle East, but now for, for Europe uh, and beyond. 
And if you look at that conflict, uh, I submit to you that over 50% of that conflict has nothing to do with domestic Syrian affairs. Maybe, you know, it has certainly a lot to do with domestic Syrian affairs, but more than half of the driving forces in the Syrian conflict have to do with external parties. Because Syria is not just about Syria. Syria, of course, is partly people, uh, you know, revolting against a, an authoritarian rule. Uh, partly it's a sectarian conflict. Uh, partly, uh, you know, it's um, uh, liberals and conservatives, uh, ideological war. But even more in terms of the actual driving forces of the conflict, Syria has become a, a grounds for proxy wars. Proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran on the, on, on the one hand uh, for their strategic influence, so they back their own rulers. Not necessarily the good of the Syrians, not necessarily the good of civilians. It is about who's going to come out on top. That obviously goes with their allies. So Iran backs Hezbollah, which backs Assad. Uh, the Saudis back uh, rebels, including Islamic rebels, who are, uh, who are opposed to, uh, to Assad, mostly Sunni groups. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, you have the Turks, who are more worried about the Kurds in, uh, than they are about the Sunni and Shia per se, or, the, or Iran and Saudi Arabia per se. So it, they're intervening uh, for their own reasons uh, in, in, uh, in that uh, conflict. You have Iraq, which has to worry about ISIS operating across the border and also Sunni-Shia divide and has to make uh, its choices, therefore intervenes. You have Jordan that has to worry about what's happening across its borders. You have the Israelis from afar also uh, worried. Occasionally they intervene against Hezbollah. Um, and then uh, you have, of course, Russia and the United States and America's partners in the coalition, uh, where uh, you know, it's partly about you know, what do we want to see in Syria, but let's, let's understand Russia wants, wants to, to advance its own interests. And we want to advance our own interest. So, uh, so with, with all that layering on top of what's happening, you can understand why it's so difficult to resolve. That's why I have always believed while there is a, you can argue that Syria may have become a Humpty Dumpty, maybe. Uh, but to the extent that it could be put back together at all, the place to start is with the external parties because it's much easier to start there and that's more than 50% of the problem. And obviously that has become harder given how uh, the relationship between the United States and Russia right now on Syria. Um, so where does that leave us? Um, what I've given you is a depressing picture. Um, and you, you were depressed about the Middle East, and I assume you're even more depressed now because I sort of <laughs> talked about it uh, in that regard. And yes, uh, at, at one level I want to say that uh, yes, these uh, events that are destabilizing and the forces that are articulated are with us for the long haul, they're not going to go away tomorrow. And certainly not about public empowerment and the tension between, between uh, 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 the, the people and the elites. Uh, that's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, that's something that is going to be with us. Uh, and um, I would also say that in the long haul, I'm actually more optimistic about the public empowerment. 
I think there will be, the information revolution will, will have more good than bad, but certainly we're not going to see that in any foreseeable future, certainly not on the clock of the next administration when they're facing uh, a, the set of issues uh, there. Uh, second, I want to say that um, I, I have, you know, spoke, I, I've, I've uh, talked about uh, um, globalization in negative terms, meaning about the fact that it, it has, to our surprise, I think, exacerbated uh, the gap uh, between the 99% and the 1% rather than uh, leveled the playing field. And I think that's been the outcome that I think is true. Um, but I do think that it has certainly opened up possibilities that we, we that of good news in parts of the Middle East. Uh, because um, while I think the original optimism about globalization uh, was tied to the fact that you can have a you know a young kid in India or a young king or Mor a young kid in Morocco suddenly picking up some uh, uh, skills from the internet. Uh, you can even go to school at MIT sitting somewhere for free, uh, and and so bright people are going to pick up some skills, and they're going to be able to market their inventions, and they're going to be able to tie it to marketing. And, and, and maybe more people are going to try to market it for them because somebody will emerge to try to tap into that talent. We see that these incubators are starting all over the place. Uh, that's a good thing. But what's happened with that, of course, is that uh, usually uh, you know, you're going to have how many people are going to be inventors? You know, it's still going to be a small portion of the population. And those people are almost immediately co-opted into the elite system. And so everybody else falls further behind. Um, uh, I had a, uh, um, uh, I have a friend who is uh, almost 70 now, who is a, a prominent journalist. Uh, and he's a, he's a successful journalist, he's a well-known journalist. Uh, he's, uh, you know, upper middle class, makes a very good living, comfortable living. Um, he's not rich, but he makes a comfortable living. Uh, I uh, knew his son. Uh, it was a kid who was, uh, uh, he, he went to school at a, an institution I taught at, not Maryland, but before Maryland. And uh, he was in financial services. He, he was in business, and, and he's now in his 30s. And I asked him how his son is doing, who did a BA. Um, he said, he's doing very well. I said, what, what is he doing? He said, in, you know, he's living in New York, and he's, uh, he decided to go into the financial sector. He said, well, how, I mean, you know, What's what's he doing? He said, "Well, I'll give you a, I'll give you a, a uh, an example." He said, "Last year, he made more money than I made my entire life." Okay, so he was happy for his son, but he was saying it with a lot of with a lot of uh, pain. And and I think when you know that's the stuff that I think a lot of people feel and fear uh, yeah, that that the that the globalization given maybe some people a, an opportunity but opportunity that's not outweighing hard work for the vast majority. Um, on specific conflicts in the Middle East with the United States, um, I know you hear that the U.S. essentially is uh, getting out of the Middle East, and we hear this rhetoric about getting out of the Middle East, and obviously in some ways it reflects a uh, partly presidential statements, uh, body language, uh, and, and partly re reflects a, a sense that Asia is becoming more important. Uh, 
uh, and partly it's done, I think, tactically. Uh, but here's the reality of it. Here's the reality of it. Um, we now have more forces in the Middle East than we did three years ago. Um, we still have uh, a huge military presence in Kuwait. We still have a huge uh, naval base in Bahrain. We still have a huge air force base, air force base in Qatar. We still have, by the way, even in Syria, where we are getting criticism for not, we're not doing enough. We have more, more airplanes operating in Syria than Russia and France combined. Okay, so just don't, you know, the, this this idea that the U.S. is getting out of the Middle East, uh, I think, is 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 not realistic, and, and certainly. Um, uh, the next president is going to face a lot of crises uh, related to the Middle East. And notice that I didn't mention a thing about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, and not because I don't think it's important, but because I wanted to give you a big picture. And perhaps those of you who want to ask questions about it, I welcome them because I have a lot to say on that as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so, so the argument here is that um, um, it had, uh, there were certain things that uh, could have been done that would have uh, maybe resulted in a different outcome in Iraq, uh, is the uh, gist of it. Uh, now, first of all, notice I didn't really talk about why we went into Iraq. I just talked about here's the consequences. So whatever we did, you know, we, maybe we could have done it differently. The, I, the, the fact is we didn't do it right, and this is what we got. And so let's not escape the responsibility. You know, what happened is, you know, is it kind and, and, and interestingly, I mean, if you look at our presidential debates, um, you know, Democrats obviously blame President Bush for it, but even, you know, but, uh, you know, uh, 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 Trump blames both Bush and Obama for the reason you said you pulled out early. Nonetheless, we're pu putting the blame on the White House for making, for blunders that led to the disaster we're in. So it doesn't take us away from the consequences, from the responsibility. That whole issue, of course, about why we went in there is another story. I was very close to it, by the way. Um, I am a Democrat, but I, I have advised Republican administrations in the past. I served on uh, Bush Sr.'s, um, uh, you know, uh, in the, in the U, uh, an advisor to the U, U, U.S. mission to the U.N. during the first Iraq war. During this whole period, I uh, informally advised both the White House and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, the, the State Department, including Secretary Powell and, and his deputies. This is a period that I'm very close to. I know exactly what was going on uh, you know, um, uh, during that period, and, and I have, I've thought about it. So the, the whole, it's complicated, obviously, but nonetheless, this is what happened. And, and so now we're living with the consequences. Yeah, well, um, first of all, yeah, um, I mean, the, 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 the issue about there were a lot of people who, um, who did warn against uh, the Iraq war and had a, a different assessment, including intelligence assessment of what was happening. In fact, I would want to say on that that um, uh, Clark kindly mentioned my book, The Stakes, um, which came out in 2002 originally, just on the eve of the war, in which I did articulate a position why the war would would have devastating consequences. Not only that, but I've, uh, take, I took the lead uh, in September of 2002 
um, by um, uh, organizing uh, with a couple of colleagues an ad in the New York Times. If you go to the New York Times in September 2002, uh, you will find an ad called Why the Iraq War is Not in America's National Interest. And uh, uh, I had every single, every single major realist international relations scholar in the country in every institution went to Columbia, Berkeley, Yale, uh, Chicago, um, uh, signed that. Everyone we asked signed that uh, and, and went, went against it. So it's not like there weren't voices. And, and the articulation was very clear, you know, why, why it would, would be exactly. It'll unleash a lot of forces, including sectarianism. It'll, it'll invite al-Qaeda into the Middle East where it now does not have uh, uh, yes, Saddam Hussein is a ruthless dictator, but we can contain him uh, without without having to unleash. So there were a lot very clear arguments presented at that time. Uh, I think you know what we now know, of course, is that um, the train had left the station, and nobody was tuning in. And I think it was all about selling rather than listening. And so, and that's why when we talk about you know intelligence. There's a whole debate about how much of it was doctored because, uh, you know, I, I was part of uh, uh, many of the so-called task, task forces leading up to the elections in 2000, um, in, in 2000 and then afterwards uh, uh, in Washington talking about sort of the Iraq issue. And, um, and there were, you know, lots of people who made the argument, well, even if you intervene, you should have like a half million forces. And, and stay there for the long haul, because otherwise you can't, you can't do it. But the th fact is, that could not have been sold to the American people. The American people, if, if you had told them, you're going to need a half million forces, and it's going to cost us $2 trillion, no one would have supported the war. So in order to sell the war, they had to say you could do it on the cheap, and they, then do it on the cheap. And yes, then, then even reduce the chance. I don't think it would have worked no matter what, to be honest with you. It's my own... My own view could disagree with that, but but at least if you wanted to do it, there are ways of increasing the chance that you you could succeed. But it was built into this rhetoric of we want to sell it to the American people and to Congress. Everybody who said you need a half million said we shoved them aside, uh, and we just wanted to say we could do it on the cheap, and and that's that's the way it works. So ultimately, obviously, it was a failure. One last final. Yeah, um, it, obviously it's not all up to the U.S. Um, one thing I'm really supportive of this president on is that more military intervention in the Middle East is not going to fix it. And not, not at the level the American public is prepared to support regardless. So we have to put that out of our mind. Whatever strategy we want, the president's reluctance Maybe, maybe sometimes a little more than it should be, one can argue, in Syria. But the basic instinct, I think, is the right one. And it's also the one that's anchored in the, in the minds of the American people. So first of all, put aside the idea that we're going to wage new wars that are going to fix the Middle East. That's not going to happen. Uh, number two, uh, I think you have to prioritize. Um, you know, you can't deal with everything that's going on at the same time. Uh, so... Uh, when you ask the American public what is your top priority right now, they say fighting ISIS. 
Now, ISIS, of course, tied to a lot of other issues, so it's hard to know what fighting ISIS means. But if that's what's going to be our priority, we have to, you know, swallow hard on a lot of other things. We can't fight, you know, every single ruler in the Middle East and, and, and pressure everyone without having a strategy of prioritizing. Number three, um, we've got to create coordination across the international community. This is not an American issue only. And as I said to you earlier, uh, more than 50% of the problem is foreign intervention in the Middle East. And therefore, we're going to have to find a way to create a different international relationship in dealing with the Middle East than the one we have. 